you have your physical Bible, um, which I would encourage you to have in addition to your device, you're supposed to have coffee, your pet, your device, still be in your jammies, and jammies, do people say jammies still? And have a physical Bible. We're looking at John chapter 5, because I think it's a terrific representative of uh, an interaction with Jesus. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Uh, But he answered them, The man who healed me, That man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. All of the interactions with Jesus where we have details, sometimes it'll simply say that Jesus healed many, but when we have the detailed interactions... Almost all of them are unsettling for one reason or another. Oftentimes for many reasons. Jesus is so direct. Isn't he? Do you want to be healed? He asked a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. I wrote this sermon series, and by that I mean just sketched it. I didn't, you know, write every word that I'm about to say to you last year. Because I, I, I long to help us lean into the healing power that exists today of the Holy Spirit because of the kingdom life that Jesus promised. So I wrote it last year, and uh, I'm thankful for that for a number of reasons. One, I think there's relational health because of the power of the Holy Spirit and the healing of Jesus today. It involves our past, present, and future. Those are the three sermons. But I'm doubly thankful because uh, what would it be like for us now if we had done Vision 2020 and I had told you exactly what the Lord is going to do in 2020, say in January? And the other reason I'm glad for the series is um, quarantining or not, if you have a job where you're not quarantined, presents additional relational um, challenges for us, doesn't it? And if you haven't experienced any of those, I'm so thankful, but for many of us, uh, quarantining provides challenges of patience. Uh, Jeanette Downey in our video last week said, pray for for patience uh, and rest, or energy, patience and energy. Coffee provides one and not the other. And I was like, wow, that was really well said. And I'm 
pretty sure she wasn't the first one to say it, but she's the first one that I heard say it like that. And one of the reasons that we're challenged relationally is because of our past. And as I look through the scriptures, when Jesus ex- interacts with one or two or three people in an extended way, we know a lot about the conversation. His very presence, and sometimes his words, and sometimes the other person's words, end up involving their past and their present and their future. If you look at the first miracle recorded in the book of John in chapter 2, the miracle of Cana, it's mostly Jesus talking with his mom, and there's references to the past, to the present, and to the future with respect to his ministry and the people there at the wedding. If you look at John chapter 3, his conversation with Nicodemus, they talk about Nicodemus' training as a religious leader, and they talk about his understanding today, and they begin talking about the future and what Jesus is revealing about the kingdom of God, and Nicodemus is there at the end. I want to learn more about how Nicodemus came to be a Jesus follower. Scripture doesn't tell us that whole story. John chapter 4, a very famous interaction with Jesus and a Samaritan woman at a well. And he says, go get your husband. She says, the man I'm living with is not my husband. And he then mentions her backstory. He talks about her past, and then she brings it to the present, and then she brings the whole village there, changing their future forever. In John chapter 9, Uh, a story that parallels this one in John chapter 5. There's a man who's born blind, and the disciples say, was it this man that sinned or his parents? Which is a fascinating question. I wonder if the disciples, when they asked that, knew that he had been born blind. John knows when he writes the story. And Jesus says, it wasn't this man or his parents. This was done so that the uh, the glory of God would be evident to him and to the people around, which is very different than John chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 9, there's this famous story of a man who was paralyzed, and his very good friends wanted to get this paralyzed man to Jesus, so they ripped up the roof of a person's house and lowered the man. And do you remember, before Jesus healed him, he forgave him. Interactions with Jesus involve so much more than just the present moment. They involve the past and the present and the future. My hope in looking at the interactions with Jesus and attempting to look at them through the lens of our own past, present, and future is that we would receive healing from our past, guidance and confidence for our present, for our present time, our present moment, and confident hope and not fear about the future. So, if you want to get up and go into the kitchen, you're already tired of the sermon, I'm just going to spoil it for you. Here's my hope. That you invite the healing power of Jesus into your past. I'm going to say more words. The sermon's not over, but um, I can't tell if you're going to get up and go into the kitchen or not. My hope is that all of us both choose to and learn to continue to choose to invite Jesus into our past. What we're longing for is interpretation, integration, and healing. Rest for our very being. And I think we know that these categories are important. My first interaction with um, A Christmas Carol is uh, Bill Bill Murray's version, Scrooge, which I don't think is up on the picture there, but... When was A Christmas Carol written? Several hundred years ago. And remember the three ghosts? Ghost of Christmas Past, 
Ghost of Christmas Present, The Ghost of Christmas Future. I really liked the Bill Murray version. I was 12. I thought about playing the trailer for you. I couldn't find a trailer that isn't scary. It's kind of a scary movie. Maybe that's why I liked it. We understand the importance of this. We understand that our past, I think, we understand that our past affects our present, which affects our future. We understand that to be fully present in the moment which is a good idea and something a lot of self-help people are talking about, and I, I think it's good to talk about being present in the moment, involves having contended with our past. And our future, which for many of us is our favorite thing to think about, and for many of us causes anxiety and fear, how we think about and approach our future is dictated both by our present and by our past. People like to say that the past is unchangeable, and that's true but it can be interpreted. I remember uh, taking a class in personal training in high school, actually, and one of the first rules is uh, when you come upon an injury, nothing, no, no, don't let your face change expression. So don't be shocked, right? Um, and that was important. I never ended up doing any personal training, but now when I watch sporting events, you know, they, and they'll slow it down, you know, the athlete turns their ankle and they just show it like, ten, and I can't watch it. I used to be able to watch it and not think much of it. I, maybe it's because I have kids. Maybe it's just because I'm getting older and I'm tired of seeing injuries. One of the things that Jesus offers because of his teaching is an interpretation of what happened to us. You know, we see this in Westerns, right? How bad is it, Doc, when they finally get him there? In military movies especially, when the medic gets there, how bad is it? And as I'm talking about this, and we're talking about our past, we're going to be focusing um, pretty specifically on those of us that have, have suffered. And some of you really haven't suffered very much. And Christianly speaking, it's very important that we contend with— the, not contend, how do I want to say this? If you have not suffered a great deal, and you're a follower of Jesus, the Scriptures would lead you to be prepared for it. Not for every kind of suffering, not because everyone suffers the same. That's absolutely not true. There's no guarantee that you'll suffer as bad as a person that, that you know that has lost X number of people, etc. But there are many, many scriptures, a couple that we'll look at in a minute, uh, that tell us to prepare for suffering. So f- for many of you, this sermon will be applicable um, now, but for a few of you, it will be applicable later. And that's a very Christian thing to do, to expect that we'll suffer. What Jesus offers in terms of healing of the past begins with interpretation. The best case scenario for us um, is that we, we turn to him and ask for his interpretation, and then we ask that he help us integrate what has happened to us into who we are today. James and Paul probably say this the most specifically. There's a full expectation that the... Um, Suffering we've experienced is part of who we are and is part of our calling. So the hope is that interpretation and integration and then meaning. Uh, There's a book out that I'm about a third of the way through called The Sixth Stage of Grief, which assumes that we have gone through the other descriptive, not prescriptive stages of grief in order to find meaning. But meaning isn't possible without grief or the things that have happened to us. And I don't want us to wallow in our grief. I, I can picture some of you that I know are oriented to the future, and you're like, 
I don't want to be a victim. Well, one of the ways to not act like a victim is to actually grieve the pain we've experienced and even the trauma we've experienced. I texted a number of people yesterday trying to get a handle on how I would define trauma, and they encouraged me, uh, psychologists and, and some pastors and some other people with additional training in this matter, and they encouraged me to avoid the word pain because trauma can be a, an experience uh, that was too complicated to interpret or integrate quickly. Oftentimes we don't realize that it was painful until later. None of these things, interpretation, integration, and meaning, as the path for us to heal, none of those are possible without grief. The most profound example of this in the scriptures, and I'll explain in a minute why I didn't use this as the scripture for us to focus on today. The most profound example of this is in John chapter 11. I don't know if you know the story of Jesus raising from the dead one of his very good friends, Lazarus, who he loved a great deal, who was the brother of Mary and Martha of Bethany. But if you read John chapter 11, there are many, many challenging things about it as stories go. It really presses on us to see the human and divine face of Jesus. But the first disorienting thing that happens after we find out that Lazarus is sick is that Jesus waits to go. Then, when he gets there, both Mary and Martha speak beautiful testimonies about the power of Jesus. I think Mary, uh, Martha specifically can get a bad rap because of that time that she was overly busy and got mad at Mary, which a lot of us relate to. The testimonies that both of them give about Jesus in John chapter 11 are beautiful. And part of the reason that they are um, the first proclaimers of the resurrection is because they really knew who Jesus was in a deep and a profound way. But, In John chapter 11, you see Jesus grieving four times. And I know that's intellectually challenging for us. He knew he was going to raise him from the dead. He referred to that he's going to raise him from the dead. When he prays, he refers to it. And yet, four times, he bitterly grieved. This is not a, he shed a tear. This was profound grief. And he profoundly grieved because as a human, he needed to profoundly grieve in order to uh, be, well, not in order to, he needed to profoundly grieve because that's what humans do when they experience either pain or something so traumatic it can't be interpreted or integrated quickly. And he grieved to lead Mary and Martha and the others nearby into grief. I hope that you long for your past to be healed. I hope that you long for the interpretation and integration of it into your life. I hope that you could actually picture that. For some of you, um, considering inviting Jesus into your pain is actually going to be overwhelming. And that's a sign that you need additional uh, communal help. All of us need to talk with others in order to heal. But some of us Some of our pain is so profound that we'll need to seek uh, professional help to begin to process it. Doesn't mean don't pray about it, but if you close your eyes and invite Jesus into your pain and it's overwhelming, I'm not saying lean into that. I'm saying talk with a very trusted friend who is a mature follower of Jesus. Come talk to me or one of our elders or speak with a counselor. But I want you to know and, and begin to practice 
inviting Jesus into the healing of your past. And next week, we're going to talk about inviting Jesus into guiding us in our present. And then the week after that, we're going to talk about the future. And the reason I keep saying that is because I know some of us simply do not like thinking about the past. If we, if we think of orientation of time in those three ways, past, present, and future, each of us is, is naturally drawn to one of them. Some of us are very good at thinking about the past and need a little bit of encouragement and help thinking about the present and the future, Draw, asking Jesus to guide us in the present and asking him to, to help us think about our future in a Christian fashion. Uh, for me, the present is the easiest to think about. I can think easily of people that are, are focused on the past and I love learning from them because I know it's important, but sometimes it drives me nuts. I was meeting a number of years ago with one of our leaders and we were working on a project together, but I had had a really challenging meeting right before that meeting. And I'm a very in-the-moment person in good ways and bad ways. And we're talking about this project and I said to the leader, like, I don't have much energy for this because it's a challenging meeting. And this person's gifted at thinking about the future and they did not understand. We need one another and to, to accomplish things, but also we need to grow a little bit in the ways that we don't naturally think about. So if you naturally focus on the past frequently, good. And we want to ask Jesus to help us both focus on the present and the future. The reason I picked John 5 for the example of this, even though in the interaction with Zacchaeus and the paralytic in John chapter 9 and John chapter 3 and John chapter 4 and John chapter 2, you see Jesus interacting with people's past present and future, and them just naturally understanding that an interaction with Jesus affects all of those things is because of verse 14. Did that throw you off a little bit? Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. If that's always how Jesus talked to people who healed them, that would be... uh, Well, he didn't. Let me just say it that way. It's the only time that Jesus responds that way to someone after healing. Now, oftentimes when Jesus interacts with someone, he encourages them to go forward and love God and neighbor. But this time he says that. Why? I think what the scripture and John are leading us to understand is that this man caused his own paralysis through a mistake that he made deliberately. What about you? What is there in your past that needs the healing of Jesus? And for, for us, perhaps the thing in our past we didn't have any agency over. You know, the, the overlapping categories of sin and pain that we experience in this world come from all sorts of places. Some of them come from our own decisions, right? Like this man in John chapter 5. Some others caused us the pain that we feel. Sometimes it was random. In 2009, I was diagnosed with a form of cancer that has no known causes except for three packs a day of smoking, which I did not, do not do. Sometimes we suffer and there is not a reason behind it. What is it in your past that's unhealed? What is it in your past that you're ashamed of? What is it in your past that leads to your present and future fear? My hope is that you both invite Jesus into that and make that a practice. How often? Not all the time. We don't need to constantly dwell on 
the challenging things that have happened to us, the pain we've experienced either from others or randomly or self-caused. But we need to spend some time on it. And the whole of Scripture does this. In the Old Testament, as soon as God makes a covenant, he then begins referring to those covenants, reminding people of how his steadfast love pursued them. Oftentimes when they would speak about God or when God would talk to them about his covenants, what would he say? I am the God of your fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, which would remind them of the covenant that he made with them. If you read the Psalms, people crying out to God as they experience life, they will refer to the past and the present and the future, expecting the pursuing love of God, the wisdom to help and to heal and to guide them. That's what I'm encouraging you to do also. Whether it's mistakes of our own, whether it's debts that others have incurred with us. Even the world, you know, the evil and sin come at us from so many different directions. Have you experienced envy this week? And envy, biblically, is when we see something or someone that someone else has, we not only want it, which is jealousy and coveting, but then we think that they don't deserve it. That's biblical envy. We see something or someone that someone else has, we not only want it, but we think they don't deserve it as much as we do. If you've envied this week, I believe the dominant force of that envy is the world. The world that is under the curse, after Adam and Eve stopped trusting the good heart of God, leads us astray from being content with what we have and what we don't have. And all this is under the heading of integration. I was talking with a pastor when I, when I texted the, the four people about definition of trauma and pain, and I was just mentally working on this sermon. He said, I think of integration as discipleship. Being grown as a follower of Christ is profoundly, oh, how do I, that's not how I want to say this. Discipleship is being grown up as a lover of God and neighbor. An incredibly important facet of that is the integration of what has happened to us in our understanding of how that informs and makes up who we are as a follower of Christ. And the reason I'm talking so much about pain and interpretation and integration is because there is healing from Jesus who first secures you in him. The New Testament says over and over and over and over and over, we're in Christ after his pursuing love comes after us and we respond by faith. Then there's healing. And that healing is through interpretation where we hold up to Jesus and ask him about our past. How big of a deal was that, Jesus? Have you done that? Have you ever prayed about a disorienting moment or season and asked him how big of a deal it was. And sometimes it actually wasn't a big deal. And we're holding on to it because the world has convinced us that it was really painful. But most of the time in my experience, and my experience is weird because being a pastor is very weird. Quoted Marilyn Robinson last week. I love the way she describes this. When you're walking by, people will often change the subject of what they're talking about. Then, they'll come into your office and tell you the most remarkable things. It's so humbling to get to pastor you and have you tell me stories that not very many people, if any, know. And 
those stories of joy. I hope you hold on to and praise God for it. But the purpose of this sermon is I hope that you hold up to Jesus the pain, trauma, disorientation that you've experienced and ask him both how big of a deal it was and ask the Holy Spirit to help you integrate that into who you are. Healing comes from Jesus who first secures us in him. Then, through interpretation and integration, releases us from that pain. Heals us. From about the age of 15 to uh, 32, I was convinced that if I knew the right thing, especially Christianly, and knew how to say it and how to do it, I didn't have to tend to my past. What about you? What ways have you come up with to try and avoid the interpretation and integration of what's happened to you? The Apostle Paul prays for the Ephesians this way. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Do you hear in that Paul's full expectation that in this life we can receive the healing of Jesus? The Apostle Paul who who used to persecute Christians. The Apostle Paul who was angry, confesses envy, talks about his story in almost every letter that he writes because he was friends with most of the churches that he wrote to with the exception of, of the book of Romans and he still talks about his story in that. And he always talks about it a little bit. Those of you that are skeptical of the importance of your past, part of your skepticism is really good because we do not need to exclusively focus on our past in our prayer lives, in our communication, or in our, in our uh, community with one another. But there is a full expectation of healing now. Why? And this is so important. It's not self-help. It is, bec- it is for God's glory That is why we reach out to Jesus and ask him to tend to our own hearts. First, so that he would be glorified. Second, I couldn't fit this into my outline, so I need you to see an hour. The second reason Jesus heals us is still not for us. It's actually for our neighbor. Because part of our integration means we then understand what has happened to us as part of our calling. I'm sometimes uncomfortable about what I know about medicine because of the things that have happened to me and especially to my wife, but they allow me to be a better pastor and a better friend to Christians and to non-Christians. They're part of the integrated calling of my life, which means I have begun to see, I have begun to see some of the meaning of the things that have happened to me, but meaning comes after the grief, interpretation, and integration. Not, and and not, that's not prescriptive. These are overlapping categories that are all happening in us at the same time. 
Paul wasn't being fancy with his language in Ephesians 3. Paul wasn't trying to write poetry, even though that's beautiful prayer, isn't it? Paul has a full expectation that through prayer and communal worship and community, where we risk with one another and share a little bit of our story with one another, we receive interpretation and then integration, which is discipleship and healing. Paul fully expected that the Ephesian church was doing this by sharing their stories with one another, by receiving the sacrament, by singing together, by reflecting on the promises of God. He fully expected that as individuals and as a church, they were being healed. And then their agency in the world was uh, better, was more profound, was more clear. Their proclamation of Jesus as Lord, their service to their neighbors, their faithful presence was clear and better. One of these is easier for you to think about, the past or the present or the future, and yet all of them are part of who we are as followers of Christ. Holding up to him our past, which is the one we're perhaps clearest about, asking for his healing, interpretation, integration. We hold up to him our present that he would guide us and give us the joy that he purchased and secured for us. And we hold up to him our future and ask that he help us love him and neighbor well. James, the older brother of Jesus who was persecuted remarkably in the first century, writes this to other Christians, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So James is assuming that we know this about the Lord that we know that his healing presence that is already indwelling in us in the Holy Spirit produces steadfastness. I'm picturing this um, for you on a, on a walk, and I think that's actually not as good as picturing it for you in corporate worship. I've talked a lot over the last couple of years, quoted this verse a lot. Romans chapter 14, verse 17. And the reason is, Jesus spoke a lot about the kingdom. And a lot of people like to say the kingdom is where Jesus is king, and that's true. But I don't know if that feels applicable to you. And because Paul defined it, I, this, is, this is my definition of the kingdom. Because it's Paul's. I feel very good about this. He says this, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. This has been purchased for you and is available to you right now. And one of the things that blocks our felt experience of the kingdom, though the kingdom is ours by faith, and though it has been given to us through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, are these things that still bother us. You still have dreams about things from your past? It's because they have not been as, in, as integrated as they could be into your story. You haven't asked Jesus to interpret them. And I'm not saying if you pray that after this, you'll never have a bad dream about that again. The worst one that I have is at the University of Missouri, and I don't have it anymore. 
because I've done some of the work I'm talking about. I used to have this dream all the time. <laughs> or the University of Missouri found me and forced me to come back and finish my English degree because of how terrible my thesis was. <laughs> it was on the Brothers Karamazov. I had not finished reading it. I have now. And for, oh man, I want to say I only stopped having this dream about four years ago because I needed Jesus' interpretation of it and integration of it. And I know that's a silly story. I'm picking a silly story on purpose so that we see the kingdom that's available to us because I think you know what joy means. Confidence in God regardless of emotion or circumstance is how I define it. But I think you know what it means viscerally. And here is... Paul talking about Jesus, saying it's available, and I think one of the things that blocks us from experiencing what has been purchased for us and what we have in our hearts because of the Holy Spirit is our past. Longing for the interpretation and integration of it. I hope this week that you spend some time, not a great deal of time, but some time Asking Jesus to tend to the mistakes and sins of your past or the sins of others in your past or things that are random, like the, the cause of them is not clear. But it was traumatic. And again, trauma isn't even a felt experience of pain so much as something that is uh, impossible to interpret or integrate quickly. I hope that you hold those things up to Jesus. you pray with me? Father, we praise and thank you that you are love and that you created us as an outflow of love. Ask that you would help us, Father, to experience and understand and know deeply and be gripped by your love. Jesus, we praise and thank you for the kingdom that you described and purchased for us. One of joy and peace and righteousness. Holy Spirit, we praise you that you inhabit our praises this morning. We praise you that you indwell us. We praise you that you are even now drawing us toward full healing as your sons and daughters. Tend to us in our shame and our fear, Lord. Draw us, near to, uh, draw us near to you in ways we can sense and understand and enjoy our union with you. And for those that are not yet your followers, Lord, would they know that this healing is available by faith in your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.